Right on. <laughs> Hello? Yes. Hello? I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with my audio. Um, I heard see. you, I heard you, Susan. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think it recorded. Okay. That was a good point. My headphones are, yeah. What's going on with these headphones? Oh, okay. Get yourself together, Matt. I know. No. Professional. I know. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Uh, I didn't have them plugged in all the way. That's why it was weird. Yeah. Every time I moved my head, they were it was clicking out. Amateur hour over here. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Spoiler alert: When this podcast talks about the books, it talks about it in the context of the entire the Song of Ice and Fire series. And when it does so about the television shows, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. Before the Dragon, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, and the HBO Game of Thrones prequels franchise. And welcome back to Before the Dragon podcast, your host, Matt. How you doing? I am joined by two sirens of A Song of Ice and Fire. They're not called sirens because they're evil or because they kill any, you know, sailors or anything like that. They just sing the wonderful song of A Song of Ice and Fire that draws you in. That's why we call them that. First, we start with our A Song of Ice and Fire siren from the East. We welcome back once again, Susan. How are you? I'm fine, Matt. And who knows? Maybe I am a little evil. Oh. Oh. <laughs> now I'm scared. I don't know if I want to have you on anymore, Susan. Geez. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, well, okay, that's to my right side as I face north. If I look to my left, am I going to find someone evil over there, too? It's Kelly, the Song of Ice and Fire siren from the West. <laughs> you know, you know I've got my evil side, but I, I have to say that was uh, <laughs> bone-chilling, Susan, and I loved it. <laughs> it was, it was. I am surrounded by evil, people. Um <laughs> Not that I'm that good myself either. So there we go. It's just a, a dark podcast for a dark couple of chapters. Uh, this time around, we're looking at Fire and Blood by George R. R. Martin. We're covering the last two chapters. You may get it in two podcasts, depending on how long our discussion goes. But in this recording session, we are covering chapter 22, Under the Regents, The Voyage of Alan Oakenfist, and the final chapter, chapter 23, I hope I say this name right, The Lysini Spring. And the end of Regency. Uh, did I say that right, guys? The so. audiobook it says Lysine. Lysine. Okay. All right. That makes more sense. Because, you know, it's not Roy Dotrice, so we can maybe trust it. <laughs> Before we do get started, though, uh, I, just a couple things about the podcast. Mattsaudioblog.com. M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. It's your one-stop shop for everything that I do. And that's including the Dust podcast, which we'll be covering his dark materials this fall. Finally have a release date for that. November 3rd on the BBC, November 4th on HBO. So I will have to give up my Monday night football in order to watch his dark materials, uh, which I don't mind. Uh, Monday nights are never that big of a deal for me, like they are for some people. But uh, I'll be joined by another siren of A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll have to start calling her a siren of uh, Pullman's, a, a, si a siren of, I can't remember what the name of that series is. I guess His Dark Materials is the name of that series. Uh, Holly, she'll be joining us. So looking forward to that. 
And uh, folks, you can find all the links for that podcast at mattsaudioblog.com. You can also find contact links and the Twitters for this particular podcast. Go look. Click around. Uh, There's even a contact form in case you have any feedback for these particular chapters. Let's get into it. Chapter 22, Under the Regents, The Voyage of Alan Oakenfist. Dun, dun, dun. Chapter 22, Under the Regents, The Voyages of Alan Oakenfist was really disappointed by this chapter, guys. I was expecting this because Alan seems so cool in the whole rest of the book. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to have these great battles and he's going to do all these wonderful things. And then it's just kind of like a lot of floating around and stopping and a legend, <laughs> you know, sleeping around on his beautiful wife. Baylor. <laughs> uh, disappointed oh. in the guy. Matt, before you say too much, I do want to point something out that I didn't catch until I was reading like the wikis of each of these characters that he stops to see, and I noticed a little theme between all of these characters. Do you want me to maybe spur your enthusiasm? Please, please, make me feel better. <laughs> so I don't have like a theory as to why this is the case yet, but yes, so if we go back to under the regions, the hooded hand, we have this little scene where they are discussing a potential suitor for Lady Bela. And the paragraph where these are all, you know, regions are, are discussing who she could possibly be married off to to get her out of the way, they say, a score of possible candidates for Lady Bela's hand were considered by the regions, Lord Tully, Lord Blackwood, Lord Hightower, as yet unwed, though he had taken his father's widow as a paramour, were all put forth, as were a number of less likely choices, including Dalton Greyjoy, the Red Kraken, boasted of having a hundred salt wives but had never taken a rock wife, a younger brother of the Princess of Dorne, and even that rogue Ricarlio Randoon. All of them were ultimately discarded for one reason or another. So besides Lord Tully and Lord Blackwood, we have all three of these stops that Alan Oakenfist makes, and it's all three of these were suitors for his wife, and he's sailing around on a ship named Lady Bela. It's just interesting that those were all mentioned, and those are all of her potential suitors. (laughs) That's a wonderful catch. It doesn't make me feel any better about Alan Oakenfist himself, but it is a (laughs) wonderful catch. Yeah, so um, he becomes friends with Lord Hightower and Lady Sam. The princes of Dorne's younger brothers don't like him, so I can't really figure that one out. And then Ricali Rendoon, obviously, is ambiguous as heck, so we don't know what if, if any of this was intentional or if this was just re- George going back to some of these old characters, but just super curious. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I don't, I mean, I, I love that it's all connected in that way. And uh, like you said, you don't have a theory. Um, I can't find a reason other than just either he came up with this story and then dropped those names back in there earlier, or he was trying to come up with this story and he looked back at those names and thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I can't see any real like reason for it other than the magic has a plan. It is interesting, though. That's that really is. I, I love little details like that. So, yeah, it's very cool. Nice find, Kelly. Where do you want to start, Susan? Where do you want to talk about with this now that I've kind of aired my grievances? <laughs> well, I'm going to add something that I I listened to. History of Westeros had an episode specifically just about the Oakenfist. And so in preparation for this, uh, uh, along with reading, I, I listened to their episode and 
One thing that they said I wanted to share, because I thought this was a nice little catch in that it, it isn't specifically with this chapter, it refers back to uh, what had just happened, but with Lady Bela, when they were considering the various suitors for her, so I guess maybe this kind of tied into what Kelly said there, when she basically runs off to Alan at that time, that I don't think we uh, had discussed this before, but that's kind of a nice parallel with the uh, Allison and uh, Jahara uh, story. And uh, I nice. just uh, hadn't thought about that before. Nice. So, yeah. You know, how they when they do this type of stuff, they usually go through every single bit of ice and fire material that they can find about that particular character. So while it was in their uh, Blood and Fire series of podcasts that they've done, they did everything that they could about Alan Valerian, the Oaken Fist, from both this book and things that have been in, in uh, uh, the world of Ice and mm. Fire and the whole series and so forth. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Kelly, what do you got for me? This chapter kind of was a nice little mirrored, uh, had some symmetry to it because it starts out with him going on uh, away from King's Landing and then he... Obviously nothing happens and it's hilarious. I found that part hilarious. And then he just sails back. So I liked the the symmetry of, you know, these stops that he makes and every the things that kind of happen along the way. And I kind of got my first read through this a little bit wrapped up in just the, you know, factuals of it all. But then if you kind of look at it as a, uh, he came through once and then everybody knew that he was going to be coming back. I kind of found that more interesting thinking of how his first stops impacted his return stops. Um, so if we want to go through them, like the stops that he made, because his first one was with Ricar this Ricarlio guy, and that kind of doesn't really play out, but he goes to Dorne. And then I feel like that one has kind of consequence showing how when he comes back, they are prepared for him and it starts this whole thing with the, Viserys and all of that. So thinking of it in terms of a mirrored chapter gives each of these a little bit more importance, I think. But uh, Dorne's kind of the most consequential one, I think, down the line. Do you guys want to talk about Dorne first? Because that's a big one? Or do you want to talk about Ricarlio? Because I don't have much to say besides this guy's so cool and so weird. <laughs> he is so cool and so weird. I, I do want to talk about him for a minute because I actually, okay, I actually like this character. <laughs> I found it very colorful. I mean, granted, uh, they're, they're Probably some shady side to him, obviously. And I don't know what what of the accounts are true, but I like a guy who will buy a slave and then immediately set them free. Um, don't know <laughs> if he'd really have to ask for a kiss or not. But regardless of that, you own him for a second and you make him do one thing and then you let him go. I like that. Giving gold to beggars, giving gifts, taking no more plunder than, you know, the smallest take that any of his men get. Um, if that's all true, I really, really like him. Um, some of the things that he was having Alan do seemed a little outlandish, but I think that was more or less just a kind of flaw in his power, which uh, men have done a lot worse in this story. That's for sure. Susan, what did you think of him? Oh, definitely. I thought he was a really interesting character as well. And I think that uh, the whole list of uh, characteristics that they gave to him was was pretty fascinating and obviously a lot of it very contradictory um mm -hmm. you know you mentioned all these very good ones that you know you can hold up and say well you know it sounds pretty cool that he would do all these things um but you can also add some pretty questionable things and you know the fact that he would uh, be very free with his gifts that if somebody liked something he'd just give it to them including his wives mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A, little, you know, a bit much, but you know what that made me think of was it made me think about Euron Greyjoy because when we look back to his chapters, and, and I'm not saying that he is that kind of uh, a psychopathic, crazy character like that, like uh, Euron is, but that was something that they commented on with him is that he didn't seem to care about material things. I mean, he would gather the wealth for what it could do for him, but he was very, very free with giving things away as well. Interesting. Yeah, I don't like thinking of them in the same breath, but there are some pretty shady sides to this uh, Recalio as well. Um, so I can, I can see that. So that that's a pretty good comparison. How about you, Kelly? What was the things that stood out most <laughs> about this particular meeting for you? Oh, his whole demeanor was just made your brain kind of do somersaults. It was just, it made me think of, I did think of Euron when I thought of him. Um, I didn't know if that was just because of how erratic he kind of was, um, unpredictable. But then when I thought of him in terms of unpredictable, that also rang true with some of the things we heard uh, from Littlefinger, which kind of made it seem kind of like a brilliant ploy, where if uh, people don't know what you want or can't anticipate your moves like then you have an advantage so being erratic uh actually might have made him uh such a good leader <laughs> for the people who loved him uh, for such a long time because he's actually been around for in this story kind of in the background for a while um i for kind of was like who is this guy i'm suddenly getting this picture of him and we haven't had much of his backstory until now but he's kind of been laced throughout the story this whole time so getting to to realize that even though this doesn't seem like the, the traits of a good leader, he's actually been leading for, for quite some time in this story. So I, I don't know what to think of him. Uh, I don't know if this is um, like a maester, you know, re- retcon of the actual person to kind of discredit him even, because it does seem like he's very outlandish and maybe they didn't want him to seem as, I don't know, important or legendary i don't know this kind of has the opposite effect though i don't know (laughs) yeah Yeah, i don't know what to think of him um i kind of hope that he is a uh just a unique character that george maybe has his own personal reason for putting in here like this or if we are going to see another character like him or a reference to him dang guys i'm just blathering i don't know he was just made my mind do somersaults and now my mouth's doing somersaults (laughs) (laughs) i love it (laughs) oh dear I, I thought it was interesting how, uh, you know, he, it, with Alan, he didn't really know what to think about whether he was really a guest or a prisoner. And, you know, he kept getting treated in such different ways that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't really clear as, as to what was going on. Was he going to potentially kill him or was he, you know, just treating him as an honored guest? And it just kept uh, changing. Yeah, and was that intentional? Like, uh, like Kelly said, maybe it's kind of like a little finger thing. We're just trying to keep Alan off of his feet, or was it just something that uh-huh. because he is slightly just out there that he didn't even know what uh-huh. he was going to be like the next day? Yeah, it's like a bipolar personality. Yeah, or or something to that effect. Some kind of just strange right. disorder going on there. Right. Uh, anything else on? Riccalio, do we want to talk anything else about this meeting right now? I mean, the, the semantics are the semantics, you know, there's all kinds of crazy things that kind of are alleged to have happened there. And whether they even happened or not is uh, not clear, because if Alan truly did 
partake in some of this stuff, then I wouldn't think he'd be the one to admit it. And he would be the only one who would know other than the people there, right? Uh, how about uh, what they agreed upon in terms of coming to, to an agreement? They um, <laughs> <laughs> decided that, uh, you know, eventually uh, Alan agreed to provide him with three ships and this uh, signed uh, alliance and promise of a kiss from Lady Bela if Rendun ever visits Driftmark. And it was very kind of ambiguous of who exactly he was wanting to kiss from, but he uh, apparently was satisfied with that offer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the two cases of, as Kelly talked about the mirroring here, and not to go too far ahead, but in the two cases of negotiation, I feel like Alan did much better in this case than he did in the other case. I don't know if Bailey would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, <laughs> you, you think about it, uh, Alan always seems to be the center of some kind of negotiation. Here I am expecting all these heroics at sea and everything, and it's really just a lot of sit around, sitting around and, and nothing happening. It's like the chapter is named after the guy who really didn't do anything other than have things just kind of happen to him. Uh, but it's weird because I, I, do, I do feel like when you think about Alan in terms of negotiation, it was his incident with the Bravosis that caused that whole fiasco for... Uh, what was going on you know, that ended up costing the the throne a whole bunch of money. And then here he's negotiating this. And then when he, when he has to negotiate for Viserys, uh, that doesn't go so well either. So it's just, uh, it feels like that uh, here's a guy who just wants to sail a boat, but he's always getting pulled into meetings. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because going back to when they were naming uh, like Lord of, of the or Lord Admiral of ships or something, and he's like, he can have it. I like to sail ships, not buy them or something like that. And yet here he goes around being like a negotiator and basically just a not doing any fighting, which is such a contrast to when we met him and he's he's ramming, you know, ships with ships and getting his name, the Oaken Fist, you know, and now all he's doing is signing stuff and treating and it's kind of more of an ambassador than a, a like a, I don't know, sea warrior, like uh, the sea snake, you know. He's the Ben Franklin of uh, A World <laughs> of Ice and Fire. <laughs> That's all over. The negotiations. Yeah, it's like the negotiations of Alan Oakenfist. We're going to call this chapter. Yeah, I'm going to sit over here in England and twiddle my thumbs for a little while. And then I'm going to have to report home and start a revolution. And then I'm going to go to France and uh, sleep with a lot of women and help the French get to be part of uh, the revolution. Yeah. One thing that I, I wanted to note when you're talking about your disappointment with this chapter is this is supposed to be one of his, or his, the first of his six big uh, voyages. And that did seem kind of like, uh, if this is considered one of these six, it sounded like those voyages would be epic. And I would agree, this didn't seem like a very epic trip. I would agree too. I mean, I personally, I want to read Six Times to Sea, being an account of the great voyages of Alan Oakenfist by this Maester Bendemure. I, I want to read that one. I don't want to read this one. Yeah, because you have to assume he went to sea like way more than six times, right? It just seems weird that this is listed amongst one of the great voyages or something. Um, yeah, this one's weird. I, my only thought as we you know, skip ahead a little bit is that he did manage to enlarge the fleet by quite a bit by going to these play uh the to old town i guess um 
that's like kind of his biggest mm-hmm. accomplishment uh, until he gets back to Dorne and then goes elsewhere. Mystery, mystery, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that it's accounted among them because of that final uh, incident. So Yeah, this being a prelude is a little bit of a, of a uh, misrepresentation of what the voyage actually accomplished, which is bringing back the... You know, the heir, the prince. So perhaps this is great in, in its result, not that we actually get to see the greatness on paper. <laughs> True enough. True enough. What, what else do we uh, want to talk about here? Uh, do we want to move on to Dorne now? Yes. Okay. Uh, whoever wants to go, go. <laughs> Matt. Matt, I want, to, I want to hear you, Matt. Hello? Because you apparently think that... Uh, Alan was very naughty while in I Dorne. think Alan w- was really <laughs> naughty in Dorne with Nymeria herself, with young, with the new Nymeria. Yes, I, I definitely think that was happening. I think that's the only reason the brothers would hate him. And um, I don't think that he didn't enjoy it myself either. But that's just... Well, he had to get those maps. Come on, he had to get those maps. <laughs> there are other ways to get maps. <laughs> <laughs> He's a dirty, rotten scoundrel, this Alan Oakenfist. <laughs> and frankly, you know, this stop in, in uh, Dorne, other than his uh, supposed alliance with this Eliandra, it doesn't seem like there was much of anything to this, you know. So, yeah, I wasn't that interested in it. What I'm more interested in is I'd like to hear more about her in general if she's referred to as the new Nymeria. I would have liked to... And maybe eventually, as the story goes forward uh, in the next, the other half of Blood and Fire, maybe we'll get more about her because I'd like to know. She sounds like she's an interesting character, but we didn't really learn much about why she's an interesting character. Yeah, I agree. I agree. She, um, when she was very first mentioned in earlier chapters, I was just kind of like, ooh, this sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to where we were getting there, I was like, oh, good. We're going to learn something. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know. That that just uh, gives George kind of this wide open door to where he can do something later, I suppose. But she does sound like a very interesting character in her own right. When you think about the 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 whole Nymeria thing, I mean, she led her people over from Essos on boats, and then she made them all burn their boats, right, so that they would have to stay there and torn, mm-hmm. or so the legend says. So, is it? How does she get this? name the new Nymeria is the thing is it is she fascinated with ships or the destruction of ships or or something like that is it something that simple or is it just in her leadership abilities what do you think Kelly yeah I I think her she's it says that she is self-styled as the new Nymeria or she saw herself Mm -hmm. as the new Nymeria so she kind of put herself in that role and I it's not really clear from the text yet if that's because she views herself as like a Nymeria reborn, or if she views herself as like this leader of the Dornish, but with the new ideology. And because she does show favoritism to uh, this hero of the sea or something like that, uh, hero of the Stepstones. So she kind of has this affinity for somebody who is a sailor, you know, who's, you know, seafaring. And she does end up marrying that, a guy from Lise Rogare, right? So she yeah. has all of these affinities for Essos and, and travel. So it's like she's the opposite of the old Nymeria. So she's the new Nymeria. It's kind of how I feel her storyline is going. 
it also could be the fact that, uh, you know, what you said about Namira is true, but also she continued to be a leader in Dorne for many years, had a couple of additional husbands and so forth. So that's only the part about her, you know, bringing the fleet and burning the ships is only the beginning of her story. So there could be other reasons that that are more aligned with other things that Nanyeri did later on that she feels the affinity for. True enough. True enough. What else about Doran, Kelly? Anything? Well, I personally don't think that uh, Mr. Oakenfist here was naughty at all. I think he was a very good boy. (laughs) I think he did his best. I view basically this uh, section very similar to how he was attempting to negotiate with uh, Queen Ricarlio Rendoon, where he just has this attention of people and doesn't really want to make bad blood by, you know, shutting them down. But he also has to kind of balance it with his honor, which I see. I don't think he... um, We don't have a mushroom to tell us what actually happened here. So I can't say one way or the other. Uh, Which is great because it sparks a debate because I feel like (laughs) he should be ashamed of himself as I do my (laughs) students. I, I do like that the, the two contesting stories are called uh, Bastard Born is one of the, the tales um, about his travels. And the other one is uh, Hard as Oak. Come on. These are hilarious names, George. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. See, I, I, I'm betting that a lot of this uh, alleged stuff comes out of uh, Hard as Oak. That was the one written by his squire who was with him um, in his youth. Yeah, so I'm going back to the kind of the beginning of the chapter. So Hard as Oak was written by Sir Russell Stillman, who squired for his lordship as a youth and was later knighted um, before the fifth voyage. And then The Bastard Born was um, written by, by a Rue. woman. Yeah, so that reminds me of Septa Lamour, right? Who may or may not have been a Septa, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So hard to hard to uh, to say which one is more believable because we don't actually know either of these characters. But you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Probably somewhere in the middle is the truth. <laughs> True, except that yeah, he should be ashamed of himself. <laughs> now what? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I found a new way to rib uh, Kelly. Uh, I, don't have to, I don't have to talk about uh, Drogon leaving. Uh, <laughs> Daenerys anymore. <laughs> it's now it's o- Ellen Oakenfist's honor. <laughs> I tend to think, Matt, that you're probably uh, right. Plus, he goes on to have quite a. Uh, it sounds like you know, in the future, from what we know of him, he ends up getting involved with another princess, and I think he was still married at the time. They were having children, so you know. Yeah, yeah. I think this is just the beginning of the destruction of the honor. Of Alan Oakenfist, Kelly. I don't know. I'm just going to point out that later when he gets his brother's bones back and he writes one word on the tombstone, it just says loyal. And I feel like we should take that into account a little bit. He was calling calling his brother something that he never could be. (laughs) Plus, he may have have certain feelings about what one should be loyal to and what is you know what's important to be loyal to and what isn't so (laughs) unfortunately i'm afraid a lot of the men of this realm didn't think that uh that faithfulness was necessarily that high on their list Uh, all right i'll concede that you guys are probably right but (laughs) i'm going to choose to believe that until it's on page my dear oaken (laughs) fist's honor is unimpugned unimpugned 
I I appreciate your loyalty to him. That's great. Uh, no, wonderful. Do we want to move on now to, or, or is there anything else there, or do we want to move on to Old Town? At this point, yeah, at this yeah. point, I think he's just, uh, he gets maps, and, and then he has a little bit of a rough uh, go of it. It's where he takes his first losses, and then, yeah, then they, he goes to Old Town. Yeah. So I want to read this quote. The courtesy with which Lord Allen treated Lady Sam warmed Lord Lionel to him immediately, and the two views struck up a fast friendship that did much to put all the old enmities between the blacks and the greens to rest. I mean, come on. All blacks and all greens are just these particular blacks and greens. I don't get how treating Lady Sam like, you know, she belonged with Lord Lionel. I don't I don't see how that amends all things about the blacks and the greens. No, but I think that, you know, it's being symbolic of the fact that you've got a couple of people here who were on on the, the two opposite sides who are now able to form a good friendship and things get along. And I just think it's you know, showing a, the potential of how they're able to move past all that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Matt, I, I agree. I think this is a little bit of maester flowery language to make it seem like uh, the, the yeah. w- wounds are being healed. But I, I do think he has a point. Like the Valerians were the s- strong for the blacks, and the High Towers were strong for the Greens. So they, these, you know, great strengths finding friendship in the next generation is actually really refreshing because you get a lot of these uh, animosities between the, the following generations. So to see that they this generation was actually getting along is. Un- unusual and I think worth mentioning. I think Gildane goes a little far by saying that all of the blacks and the greens are now reconciled because of this little romance. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, but it's nice. It's a, it's nice to see um, friendship blooming, even though it does have this like tinge of like conspiracy, doesn't it? How does it have a tinge of conspiracy, Susan? Tell me. Um. <laughs> I'll have to let Kelly elaborate on that, but I mean, but I do, I agree with what you're saying, Kelly, because, you know, both of them, both of these houses were extremely important in terms of what the, the sides that they were aligned with being, you know, that uh, the high towers were as important as they were. And the Valerians were pretty darn close with the Targaryens. So you, you couldn't, you know, besides the Targaryens themselves, you really couldn't get much more important houses in the whole conflict. Yeah, I, that's kind of my thought. Is once you see your your liege lords uh, befriending, you know, their past enemies, you can kind of put down your wep- your your guard a little bit, and uh, also do the same to your neighbors who are on the other side as well. Um, maybe I don't know. That's probably more optimism on my part. <laughs> well, I don't even see how Lord Allen could not like Lady Sam. I mean, who doesn't love Lady Sam? She's amazing. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I appreciate, I guess, because Lionel, you know, had so much trouble being able to be with her, um, given that, you know, he had to just have her as his paramour for a long time before eventually uh, the the the, uh, the high septon that kept forbidding them and kept locking her out of churches until she broke in with horses and everything. He finally passed away. Right. So yep. uh, they were able to put somebody in. Yeah, 
So, I, I mean, Lionel probably appreciates, because I don't think it, he really gets that kind of respect from anybody in King's Landing at the court, right? But, uh, you know, he probably was feeling a little shunned by everybody. And this guy comes along and he's just like me. He just adores her. And so, and because, you know, I don't think that he really wants, I don't know. Now I'm thinking, I'm thinking, did something else happen there too? No. Just to get no. a color. Oh, jeez. <laughs> there we go. That's the response I was looking for. <laughs> oh, Matt, you always got to. I, I wouldn't blame him. You're right. Sam is awesome. I have a Sam of my own. He's, uh, I think all Sams, everybody needs a Sam is uh, one of my favorite memes. <laughs> right on. But the, the conspiracy I was talking about is that this little trio is hanging out. Um, I think they're like waiting for Lord Redwine to get his galleys together and, and to join the fleet. And while they're there, um, this is around the time um, because we've kind of gone back in time a little bit in, in the main story. And this is where they find out about the cattle show. And uh, this is where I'm thinking the conspiracy uh, might be at play. So by the time he had become close to Lady Sam as well and to Lord Lionel, though whether he had any part in the writing of her infamous letter remains a matter of conjecture. It is known, however, that he dispatched letters to his own lady wife on Driftmark whilst at the High Tower. We do not know the contents. Dun dun dun. <laughs> so this is about the the cattle show, right? Yep. So that's where the whole plan of, of Bela's was launched in regards to this little girl. And I think it's what I'm taking from this is that Lady Sam made her letter intentionally outrageous uh, as a joke because it was already in the works for Alan's cousin, the girl, to mm -hmm. be married or to be presented as an option for Aegon to uh, to choose. Oh, you think it was already in the works? Okay. <laughs> I definitely think that, you know, that it is uh, meant for us to to gather that the fact that he sent a letter off to, to Bela that he would have had that, uh, you know, suggestion or recommendation that she try and, and do something about, about the situation. Hmm. Okay. Good enough. I really like the fact that uh, he spent time at the Citadel. It sounds really interesting that, you know, he went there and was able to to, you know, have access to interesting old records and things and probably information that would come of, of use to him in the future. Uh, and I especially like the fact that he was uh, blessed by the High Septon because um, though the High Septon was having such issues with uh, with Lady Sam, I, I think in, in terms of Alan, he probably was so pleased that he was going to go take on these horrible uh, Iron Islanders who worship this, uh, this you know, god that he doesn't believe in, that uh, he wanted to uh, bless that endeavor. Yeah, I think this is cool to see, like, Alan making kind of, like, alliances um, with uh, the west side of Westeros, where you normally get Driftmark being very embroiled in the, you know, east side of, of Westeros. So it's kind of neat to see this crossing over, like, houses and stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, my last thing on this section is just the um, the red wines, and I'm just giggling 
as I usually do, but specifically at the Red Wines and how much they're lollygagging, getting their ships together, and how when we'll see how even after they leave and get to the Iron Islands, like the Red Wines ships are just like, we're coming, we're here. <laughs> Has the fighting started yet? <laughs> they're just... Very clever. I don't know if it's a ploy. I don't know if it's, you know, to keep their, their numbers strong. Um, I had to look up like this house red wine because I'm not as good at keeping all of these houses and their histories together. But, um, I did recall that Lady Olena is a red wine. So this, their strategy, I kind of view with a little bit of, uh, Olena cunningness. So I kind of thought that maybe this was an intentional, uh, delay so that their numbers wouldn't be dwindled by fighting. And yet they could still be seen as, uh, part taking in the um in the victory <laughs> yeah. I, I did think it was interesting that hightower uh basically was volunteering their participation and even though they said that that there was a friendship between the the two men uh previously uh it still seemed like he was he was promising more from from the red wines than he was even putting forth himself in terms of support yeah i wonder if that's just a ratio um kind of thing to determine because uh the red wine maybe the red wine fleet is just that much larger than the high tower fleet so they have they, they were giving a proportionate number of their ships and it just happens that the red wines have so many more because the red wines um an island right where the red wines are um the arbor mm -hmm. so it makes sense that they have a lot of ships <laughs> yeah well the whole purpose is to get to Greyjoy. so should we go there let's get there all right uh, the one thing I wanted to point out is is that it, it seems to me that uh, it doesn't matter what part of the story you're in or what generation you are. If you're a Greyjoy, you got something for the Targs, right? I mean, um, you either want to make war with them or you <laughs> or you want them because um, here here it is. Tis true. I have two and twenty salt wives, but not one of them with silver hair. And the first thing I'm thinking of is, you know, Victorian and Euron and Daenerys and you know and how that's the prize and how everybody's going for that now and I maybe it's just for the dragons maybe it's just for her I don't know but I it just seems like that if if you're a questionable Greyjoy then you got it out for the Targs one way or the other that's viewed as a treasure worth uh, reaping, I guess. They uh, <laughs> they want to pay the iron price for their uh, rewards, and, and they view these uh, Targaryen women that way. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I was amused with um, how the Red Kraken would only refer to Alan as that, that boy. <laughs> um, and even though he was only a couple years older than him, and Reminded me a bit of our current uh, Stark, who, when he came down, was the hand there. They were talking about how, you know, he, he, the young men that were there, even though he was only a few years older than them, there was such a big difference in, in their disposition and so forth. Uh, interesting. Interesting. And and I don't feel like that um, Dalton Greyjoy was uh, referring him to that, referring to Alan that way. Uh, in a uh, accurate way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, I don't no. think he had any context at all, uh, but um, he did try to separate himself in that way for sure. Yeah, 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 I, I agree. Yeah, I don't think that it was necessarily like uh, when they described it before with, with the uh, with the Starks and the other 
young men right. from from the you know yeah the, with with the Muppet Boys yeah right right that there, that that was definitely a, a true distinction yeah I don't think that was going on here but I just it just I recalled that when I was reading it and and his disdain here it was really funny. Absolutely no, it, I, I do. I found it. I found it funny too because here's this guy who his end is so unceremonious, and I love it that that uh, one of his salt wives did this to him. Uh, but his his end is just just like oh you knucklehead, <laughs> that boy screwed up. It's <laughs> what you're saying uh, more or less about Dalton Greyjoy. Yeah, I like how it, and as they get to that part of his story about how he is killed by this young woman that it talks about the fact that so much of history is told about the kings and queens and nobles and so forth. And yet sometimes a event will happen that will shake and shape the destinies of so many. And it just comes from a common person and they don't know where this girl came from or you know what her story was or anything, but she uh, did slit his throat. One of these salt wives and then throw herself to her death because I'm sure she didn't want to have to endure whatever they would put her through when they found her based on that. But uh, that put an end to the whole thing. That it did. And there's another uh, unremarkable, oh, well, well, as far as Lord Allen is concerned, it makes, <laughs> I came all this way for nothing? Really? <laughs> well, they did, they did get to beat people up for a little while, I guess. Who did he leave behind? He left the high towers then behind at Lannisport, and they were the ones who went on with Joanna. It says that he left a third of his power, so I would assume that it would be some of his own ships as well. Oh, okay. He just okay. He left them in under the command of that um, that high tower lordy. Okay, so he, yeah, so yeah, so he 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 gets there and uh, and leaves some of his fleet behind, and then. He takes off again, and then they go and beat up on the Iron Islanders. And so he's he's still not done anything, really, other than supply a few boats. <laughs> I like the little detail. I mean, this is just a very minor and insignificant detail, but I like the idea that Lady Joanna presented him with a seahorse wrought in gold because, to me, it was combining the uh, Valerian symbol with uh, the Lannisters, you know, primary gold is so associated with them. So it was just this nice little thing that she gave him. I thought it was cute. I do love that. That's a cute picture of like the, the their sigil, but with the Lannister kind of mark on it. <laughs> Super cute. Uh, yeah, the the only thing about Lannisport that was kind of interesting is that you end up with the sea lion. Was that his name? <laughs> yes. Leo Costain. Oh, he was funny, but very sad. <laughs> like, I, I like to even kind of blustering about, you know me, I gotta, gotta get my, uh, <laughs> my shader and Freud in. He was a grizzled seafarer and he just wanted to please Lady Joanna and, uh, <laughs> she gets him to do her bidding. And I'm like saying, hey, go for it, Lady Joanna. Uh, <laughs> get it, girl. <laughs> So I think her her will is eventually done, and she uses whatever means necessary to to see it done. But uh, yeah, as far as Alan Alan's point here is, I think that's it. Yeah, he just leaves his his um, his I don't know. It was just so unceremonious. Uh, I loved the line, um, and so it came to pass that when Alan Valerian arrived at last to deliver the West from the Iron Men of the Isles, he found himself without a foe. <laughs> 
And, and, you know, in in terms of Lady Joanna, though, that is an interesting aspect of this is if he really did want to, if he was just bound and determined to get himself involved in some sort of fighting or battle, I mean, she still wanted him to go ahead and go attack the Iron Islands and, you know, wreak her vengeance on them. But uh, he he wasn't willing to get involved in that since they were no longer putting forth the, the threat that they had them before. Yeah, I wonder why he he would have none of it. Is it because she was so bent on vengeance and they just wanted peace? Or do you think it was just, I mean, granted, she wanted to put every man to the sword and sell their wives and children to slavers. But I mean, that's a bit much. But to be fair, like she, I mean, this is realistic, I think, because she's been fighting the Iron Islanders since the dance. Like this Dalton Grajo has been making her life awful and we're just moving along in our story over here you know in king's landing and she's over here just like waving her arms around going guys help (laughs) yeah so it's realistic but uh i don't know i feel like he would he he came over there to to do fighting and he did no fighting so i don't know why he just left it um maybe it had something to, to do with the cattle show going on and he felt compelled to head back to king's landing quickly yeah but he stopped a couple places on his way back that's true so I don't know about that. I, the, the one thing that we can say, Kelly, and this will make you happy, is it seems pretty certain that Alan did not be with Joanna <laughs> I agree with you, Matt. I don't think he did. <laughs> yes. I, I think that in this particular case, Alan was honorable. And honorable and not wanting to get involved in a fight that was just really, in this case, really for seeking her vengeance. Yeah, exactly. I agree, too. Moving on. (laughs) Moving back. (laughs) Are we going to track this on the way back here? Yeah, because this is when it picks up, right? This is when it starts getting kind of, like, interesting, right? This other stuff was kind of, like, pittered out. But now we've got the real point of his voyage being number one of his six great voyages, right? Here we go. Lead us on, Kelly. Yeah. Okay. So he heads back to Dorne. And this is why I mentioned earlier, I feel like his passing through here on the first time was important to to relook at it again after what happens after everything, because I feel like the uh, new Nymeria knew he'd be coming back this way and set their, all of this up at this point, right? Do you guys think that that's possible or likely? I don't know. I haven't considered that. This whole thing was very confusing to me. I apologize. I'm not very clear on what was happening in the Daughters' War. But basically what's happening is Ricardo Randoon is fighting in the Daughters' War. And now Dorne has joined, making an alliance with Tyrosh and Lys. Now here's where Lys starts coming into the picture. And now we've got these Lysines and this Rogar family who are in Dorne. And this is where you have Alan Oakenfist actually making a... a point out of this whole voyage because he is told of a little secret and he instead of going back to king's landing goes for lease so this seems contrived but it might just be happenstance because why would you put dorn into a whole war if it's just to do this one thing um or maybe uh it doesn't really sound like dorn like much happened at this point after this with the war so maybe it wasn't such a big deal to join war just to uh, put Lice and this um, House Rigor family in in front of Alan Oakenfist on his journey back. This part, I feel like, is possible for for some conspiracy theories. (laughs) I don't engage in conspiracy theories. Uh, Analyzing, uh, let me, what's another word? (laughs) 
some deep <laughs> deep analysis, Matt. What's your deep analysis here? Your thoughtful your your, your thoughtful notes. What, what you you're got? not gonna like my answer. My <laughs> my deep answer is it was happenstance. That's it was fair. Just, it was just luck. I I support that too. I think so. Yeah. I do think it was an interesting detail that the meeting happened on the exact same day as the um, Maiden's Day Feast cattle show big event. He wasn't going to get back in time anyway. Yeah, he wasn't going to get back in time anyway. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, now, now, now we're all sitting here looking, biting the inside of our cheeks, trying to figure this out. Right. So it's so it's possible that I think New Nymeria, like after Alan left, she kind of put things in motion and put her people, you know, into the war. Brought this Lysine, you know, or maybe House. Uh, God, I'm so bad at pronouncing this this house's name. <laughs> Rogare joined over because she ends up marrying that one. So I think it's it's just so bizarre too that we don't have much of an explanation behind that. So either House Rogare approached her or she approached them after Alan left, but yeah, they weren't there when he left and they were there when he came back and it kind of changes the rest of the story. That's true. The, the, the thing that, it, that, that I find strange is why would either Dorn or Lysine seek each other out like that? What benefit could the, could this house Rogari have? I mean, other than this guy getting to be, you know, what the, what's he called? The Prince consort? Or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Um. Other than that, specifically, I don't understand what the benefit of either side would get out of that kind of an alliance or that kind of a, um. Well, let's face it, marriage in, in this world seems to be as much politics as anything, right? So, I don't understand the political benefit for Dorn. I guess is what I'm. That's true. Uh, I suppose. That's a question I would have to look and you know come up with a theory for an answer for. But House Rigor would it be approaching Dorn because it would seem like a more of a back channel way to get into in front of Alan Oakenfist and a way of being part of Westeros without being part of Westeros since Dorn is still unconquered. Um, and you know that the there's this theory that Viserys is not actually Viserys. It's this whole thing we can get into at the end of this with with uh, <laughs> the whole. Tr- um, Fagon parallel here, but the uh, the point of this at this point is that the Lysine this this Lysine house does have this boy prince uh, in their possession, and they want to get him in front. You know, they want to use it, and and so I feel like by doing this mm. with with Dorn was kind of a safe way to get into Westeros to benefit off of that. Okay, well, there's one thing I want to say right here. Maybe we can just go ahead and open this can of worms because. Based on the way that Aegon reacted to Viserys, I don't believe there's anything fake about Viserys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't either. Or, uh, just from what we're told. I mean, that may not have actually been the case. This is a maester a couple hundred years writing this later, right? But based on what we're told from the reaction of Aegon, there's no way that I don't believe that this is Viserys or that this isn't Viserys. What I could see along those lines of thinking is using his wife, this uh, that we'll find in the next chapter, talked about a lot more, but um, uh, as a means to get into the whole power thing, um, that would be a benefit for for these for these houses, I guess. Um, and not not again. I don't understand what it would mean for Dorn, 
but I do understand what it would mean for this Rogar family or Rogar so, or whatever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think yeah. I just want to say the uh, closest thing I could see it being for Dorne would to be have an alliance with a family in Essos and they don't have much of an alliance with anybody in Westeros. So alliances like that might be. Uh, the, what they get out of it, and and also I don't think that uh, Viserys is is fake. I just think it might be more like his um, teachings or his you know formative years being spent in Essos might have influenced him to give favor and be more not like he's brainwashed, but you know that having him be kind of their cat's paw in King's Landing might be. Um, yes. That's the way. The closer than I think actually him being like a fake Targaryen. Um, yeah, because right, because uh, his it, it, and that was kind of what I was getting to is it seems like his wife is pretty much running the show over there uh, as far as he's concerned. So yeah, I'm sorry, Susan, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh no. Well, I, I was just going to say that I agree that we don't really necessarily see what the benefit to Dorne about this is. I think we would need some more information as to why. Uh, the princess wanted to make this particular alliance other than the fact that they are an extremely wealthy house. And like you say, it's you know always good to have alliances. But um, I do think that for the Rogera family, for them to have, uh, you know, the the importance that they gain with having uh, the one brother as this prince consort and then the daughter as the wife to the heir, I think that they are mm -hmm. uh, becoming in a position of quite a bit of power. Mm -hmm. in Westeros, and that would definitely be a benefit to them. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So where do we want to go from here? Um, I think, you know, the, the chapter then does this little detour back to King's Landing, and I think it'd be good to kind of talk about some of the details there. I really like the idea that this new little queen Daenera brought um, some, like a little bright light into the king's life here, at least... Uh, you know, it, it, from everything we hear about this King Aegon III and everything he'd been through, uh, it seemed like he definitely had chronic depression all the time. Um, but, you know, at times that's going to be blacker and harder to deal with than others. But here for a little while, it lifted enough to where he was seeming to enjoy himself, show his new wife around. Mushroom says that he'd actually smile a bit and all this. So, you know, it was just nice to hear that there was a little bit of a light in his life here after so much gloom and doom. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, totally. And it, it just makes you hate Unwin Peak even more because he kind of like saps all of that like tiny little glimmer of light in, in Aegon Three's life here and just smacks it down and closes it off and says, no, you're a dumb little boy and you can't. <laughs> you know, have any say in the matters uh, of of their you know weighty council meetings and kicks him out. It's like, well, of course this kid well, he doesn't kick him out, but he just doesn't listen to him. And so then the kid, the king stops showing up again, and just hates you just hate Unwin Peak even more. And I think it's kind of setting you up to uh, believe kind of what's happening later. You know, here's the one parallel that I found really interesting with the television show. Actually, I think of. Uh, this young Aegon coming in to the to the, the council meeting and the way Unwin shuts him down, kind of the same way that Tywin shut down Joffrey when he was asking about dragons. Not that I feel good for, you know, good about Joffrey in any time, really, but <laughs> because yeah. it was it was kind of it was kind of funny to see the kid get his comeuppance uh, in those cases or in, in the meetings 
where he would be participating and 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 Tywin would say like the king is tired and must go to bed <laughs> you know <laughs> stuff like that uh, of course Joffrey was being awful sorry bubba sorry catfish i don't mean to slam joffrey so much but uh, <laughs> in, in, in especially in the case where joffrey was actually asking a really good question which in the end of the story mattered a great deal <laughs> you know it's, it's like what are we going to do about these dragons and Tywin says you don't need to worry about that the last dragon that was alive was the size of a cat blah 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 get out of my face and 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 we're all that kind of giggling and everything in truth joffrey could have saved everybody from Daenerys. Joffrey had his eye on the ball, man. He had his eye on the ball there. And Tywin just shut him down the same way that this Unwin shuts down Aegon. Well, see, now Bubba and Catfish would like that. Yes. Well, I, I tried to spin it as best I could for them. Uh, that's the Joffrey of podcast, folks. If you haven't ever listened to it, go listen to it and laugh. It's great. Anyway, uh, so there, there was my one parallel to the modern story, even though it's not the book story. It, it, it didn't happen in the books, but it does happen uh, in the television show. And I love that. Uh, I love that I can find a reason to really like Joffrey now. You know, <laughs> uh, you brought up something there that I had thought about when I was reading this chapter. And it's the fact that when we read the early books, we hear from George this thing about that after the dance that all the dragons became, you know, smaller and deformed and so forth until they weren't hatching at all anymore. And I'm wondering if, as he went to go write the Targaryen history, if some of this changed or whether we're going to hear more about that as we get to the second half of Blood and Fire, because, you know, we have mourning, the dragon mourning here with Reyna, and um, we hear about this one really weird hatching I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. But other than that, I'm not sure that there were any additional dragons. So I'm kind of wondering if that has been something that George is just changing over time because um, I don't know about these stunted smaller ones. Of course, he does talk about it also in Duncan Egg because he had Dunks the night that he was with there had told him about seeing the last dragon that was a stunted thing so i'm real curious how that's gonna play out because it just seems at this point that things are a little different than the way they were initially presented i, I don't know yeah and i would keep in mind that this is a tale from a maester the duncan eggs are probably the most reliable because they're the closest to that time and from like pov chat like of characters in world whereas our characters in the main series are remembering or, or repeating things that they have heard through history which you know the story changes in the telling so who knows mm -hmm. how reliable our our main series truth quote unquote is but yeah the duncan eggs would be a good one and we're going to get another one of those so that would be cool um whereas then in the next fire and blood it's still a maester telling the story so i would be a little skeptical and there are there are other discrepancies as well you go back to very early on in this particular book where we have the different account of the visiting of Win the progress at winterfell <laughs> where old nan tells john in a story about uh, how Alisane did this and that in one way, and then this maester tells it in a wholly different way. Were there six dragons? Was there just one? How many dragons came to Winterfell? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and I know that there have been all kinds of crazy theories about there being dragon eggs around at Winterfell and all this stuff uh, based on some of that stuff before, and I'm just kind of like, 
George just likes to make things as muddy as possible. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, one thing I would, I would just say to, uh, to add to the whole thing is that in the original books or the main books of the series, we have them talk about the fact that they're at the, the red keep or the heads of these, you know, the skulls of these dragons and supposedly these little deformed older one, you know, ones that came along uh, towards the end of them having dragons, they've got the skulls for them there. So that, you know, to me gives yep. more evidence to the fact that supposedly there was such a thing. That's a good mm. point. And I think I, you were probably going to say we could probably trust Gildane because he is a, a Targaryen um, maester, right, Susan? I feel like you might have been thinking that when I was talking. I could feel uh, you. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm never really good on keeping track of who's saying what from what viewpoint. So I, I'm not so I'm not the great one to um, point out that stuff. But I hear I hear I hear Susan in my head sometimes, and I'm like, I know this is what Susan would say. She, she's so wise. Wow, the sirens are evil. They trade thoughts behind my back. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. Telepathically, yeah. Telepathically, psychopathic. That's oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so unless there was more in King's Landing, I don't. I think you just kind of get a little bit of a light shining through with uh, Aegon and some hope, and then obviously shut down by Unwin. So it comes up again when uh, Alan returns, and it's cute when actually they all overrule Unwin Peak, and they all get to go down to the docks to. Uh, welcome him and I, and I thought that was such a lovely lovely scene <laughs> i thought it was beautiful too as gildane even kind of goes into the psychology of aegon because he tells the story re recounts to us the story of how aegon had to leave his brother behind and didn't have any idea of what had happened to him everybody thought he was dead and everything and you kind of feel the relief and the joy right come right through the page uh when you're when you're reading the way that Aegon runs to him and 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 hugs him and everything and i i loved that i love seeing that it was like if there's no other high point in Aegon's life ever at least he at least he did get that and i i the poor kid went through a heck of a lot and so it was nice to see at least that be one less chip to have on his shoulder for sure and the scene is as he gets off the ship and he lifts his baby in the air. Uh, he, he has a daughter um, named Lena uh, and he kisses her and Alan, you know, greets his king and queen and is given a, a golden chain studded with sapphires. And King Aegon says to him, we are glad to have you safe home, my brother. And Oakenfist laughs, climbs to his feet and says, Sire, he replied, you have honored me with your sister's hand and I am proud to be your brother by marriage, yet I can never be your brother by blood. But there is one who is. <laughs> it's so good. And it's like this, this mystery, you know, revealed and we kind of we're seeing how up and down Aegon is and how just a this light just shines with this flamboyant gesture and this boy comes off the boat and <laughs> of course i love that unwin peak is just blustering and so angry and <laughs> it's uh. all everyone around him is having a good time and unwin's having a real bad time <laughs> and, and it seems like it takes a, a while i don't even know if it does sink in for unwin because he is a loser dun 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 <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> that it, 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 you know, his whole problem with having a, an aged uh, appropriate heir for mm-hmm. Aegon is now solved, right? Does he right. even come to that conclusion in here? I can't remember. It seems like he's. I, I know that Gildane mentions it, but I don't know if he if he mentions that Unwin really realizes it. I mean, Unwin's still just upset that his daughter's not making an heir with Aegon. I guess. Probably. I I didn't notice that, but you know, one thing uh, that I I thought about, and again, I'm, I'm doing these comparisons to uh, other parts of these stories that we have together is. I love how in here, young Viserys seems like he's rather, you know, lighthearted and he's more outgoing and so forth, because we do learn that later on in life, he's considered to be kind of dour and serious when he is the hand. And I I think this is a a time when his wife had gone back to Pentos and he has the young children and so forth. So there's probably going to be more tragedies that will befall him that he'll learn. But the fact that he was away from Westeros for the end of this war, he didn't have to go through all of the traumas that this poor Aegon III did really shows in terms of his disposition and personality and everything at this point. It did. So I did find the passage where it talks about the succession and uh, Unwin's um, response to it. It just says that the return of the lost prince resolved the question of succession as well. Um, and then it's just everyone is happy about it. And then it just says, for all these reasons, king and court and city rejoiced at this prince's coming. The, their joy was not shared by the king's hand, however. But it kind of makes it seem more like it's he's upset by the um, negotiating. <laughs> because we have to talk about that, what he paid for him. <laughs> or we could talk about his journey, too, how he got there. We have so much to talk about, you guys. <laughs> but that is where we're going to have to stop for now. Folks, we talked for three and a half hours about two chapters. I don't know how, but we managed to do it. And so you're probably going to get two more podcasts of about this length when we resume our discussion of this chapter, The Voyages of Alan Oakenfist, and then conclude with the Lycini Spring and the end of Regency. So stay tuned. We'll be back next time. Remember, you can follow Kelly at Kelly Underfoot, K-E-L-L-Y Underfoot on Twitter. You can follow Susan at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter if you want to talk to either of them about these particular chapters or any chapters of Fire and Blood or A Song of Ice and Fire in general. See you next time. Send tweets to the letter B, the number 4, the Dragon Pod, and send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. <laughs>